Have you ever been plunged under the surface of your conscious life and found yourself all at sea? My Jungian therapist said to me that this breakdown was the best thing that had ever happened to me. If you haven't been keelhauled by life, then you're not living. Welcome to the Anxious Poets podcast with Adrian Scott, the Anxious Poet. But now the sun aches over the tree line, this thing of darkness I acknowledge mine. Reworking the territory of the past, exposing that the presence in loss is the impudent sprouting of a new life. Speaking lines gleaned from a dark and no moon night when only my pen knew its way. There is a certain kind of vow no one can make for you. It is the vow of vulnerability. Poetry, anxiety and vulnerability. This is the Anxious Poets Podcast. Welcome to episode 32 of the Anxious Poets Podcast. I'm Adrian Scott. I am the Anxious Poet. This episode is part two of an American odyssey, the journey that Tom, my son, and I took across the Midwest of the USA in the summer, with original poems that I wrote along the way and our reflections on what was an incredible trip for us. And I hope you'll enjoy coming along uh, on this second part of the journey. This first post is a brief interlude from the Travel Journal. Whilst I sat in the evening at Yellowstone Lake Lodge, with no internet, playing cards, solitaire, whilst Tom played on his steam game deck, sipping a bullet rye bourbon, I began to think about rites of passage. We'd heard in the books we were listening to by Joseph M. Marshall III that the Lakota had seven sacred rites. One of them, Hanblechyapi, crying for a vision. This felt like a powerful image and metaphor, an archetypal human yearning for an experience of clarity about one's life. And this set me thinking and writing. And this is what I wrote. Crying for a vision at Ghost Ranch. Each time I leave here, it is like a death. And each time I return, it is a birth. Georgia O'Keeffe. In the old rickety upper pavilion, gazing at the mesas, the ineffectual fan's word stirring the warm air, as the morning prayer ritual played itself out before us. Blood and a smashing mirror and the cave of my wounds as the flute song echoed off the buttes and up to Chimney Rock. Then I went out into the silent canyon 
to begin crying for a vision. Suddenly, I was addressed by an inner voice that spoke with the power of the land. How would it be if you raised your family, tended your garden, and then you died? My long-trained piety kicked in and I sought to acquiesce. Then my soul piped up like a black-capped chickadee and demanded some recognition, some approbation from the world. The silence of the canyons was thunderous. The sagebrush and the gradations of colour on kitchen mesa, from pale cream to blood red, silently drove home the point. This is what is on offer. This is the vision you cried for. This is the life you are uniquely fitted to live. And I came home from Ghost Ranch and have tried with all my blood to live its message. In January 2002, I made a week-long retreat at the Centre for Action and Contemplation in Albuquerque, New Mexico, with Father Richard Rohr, a Franciscan priest and founder of the centre. He'd spoken at an event the summer before at my invitation. I was involved in leading a Christian community and we were having some issues. His talk seemed to provide a bifurcation point in our collective journey. He told me that he liked to support leaders, people who had responsibilities for Christian communities, and that if ever needed counsel or a retreat, then I should contact him. And that's how I found myself halfway across the world in the high deserts of the American Southwest. It turns out Richard was a very attentive retreat leader and mentor. Gave me a daily hour and even he took me to Santa Fe for the day. I remember having a lovely meal with him in a restaurant. My encounter with him and the southwest of the USA really settled me into my 40-year-old self. His constant injunctions to trust myself, to find that still centre in my soul, seemed to steady me in a very turbulent time. He then suggested that I could come back in the summer, killing two birds with one stone, both to have a family holiday and to participate in the Men's Rites of Passage, the MROP, that he was leading at a place with the enticing, if slightly ominous name, of Ghost Ranch. My family were really keen to see the place that I'd been so impressed by, and so were two of our best friends, Aileen, who sadly passed now, and and Jenny. So in the August of 2002, we jetted off to the Albuquerque Sunport on a three-week adventure. I'd become 
really firm friends with the couple who at that time ran the guest house for the CAC, Stephen and Mary Jo Pika, and they became an integral part of that trip. Stephen had participated in the rites the year before, and he was now part of Richard's team in leading it. Richard had developed the MROP after seeing American Indian communities in the southwest, where he was a deacon at a place called Acoma Pueblo, uh, and they still practiced the initiation of boys into adulthood. He began to read and study anthropological texts and visit cultures where these were still performed, like the Maasai in Africa. His experience with young American males when he was a high school teacher and chaplain uh, in Cincinnati gave him the impression that they lacked that profound sense of their identity as men and and their place in the world, not as um, the old models of misogyny and patriarchy, but a new model of, of, of masculinity. And he thought this might be remedied by participating in a version of the initiation that because our cultures don't practice that anymore, they had missed as adolescents. So he set about devising a six-day event that would replicate some of the key themes that he discovered in his reading and research that formed the ideas around and practices around initiation. He partnered with an artist called Stephen Gamble, who had experience of ritual and drama. Interestingly, Stephen had um, devised this, but decided that the year I did it, he would participate because he didn't want to lead people through something he hadn't done. Between Stephen and Richard, they combined the more universal elements of initiation rites with themes drawn from the Christian traditions of rites of passage, Christian initiation. So it was in parts a retreat, an immersion into a landscape, a ritual experience, definitely, a vision quest, I think, and group therapy. We had group sessions every day with, with, with prompts for us to ponder and lots of silence. So after visiting a monastery in northern New Mexico called Christ in the Desert, my family and friends deposited me at Ghost Ranch and went off uh, to have their uh, week's holiday without me. And I was in this place near Abiquiu. It had been the home of the artist Georgia O'Keeffe. You will see if you Google her work, there's lots of paintings of Ghost Ranch. Um, she was she was obsessed with the place and it now is a and and was not long after her death and is now a presbyterian retreat center there's such a stark beauty to the area it immediately began to work its magic on my psyche that evening i found myself in an old wooden pavilion perched in the middle of the property with 120 other men sitting in a circle and drumming. Credible sound. As the drum beats faded, Richard addressed us. This is not about psychology, he stressed. This is cosmology. 
it is to realign you in the universe. And he told us that, that all it seemed from his studies of people like Mercia Eliard, the great anthropologist who'd done cross-cultural studies of initiation, they always seemed to take place in a wilderness, in a wild place with big skies. And that was what he meant. He was reordering our sense of who we were. We were small things in a big space, in a big universe. The poem that I read is an account of the beginning of the first full day of the event. Every morning there was what they described as prayer rituals. They comprised a reading of Christian scripture accompanied by a sort of liturgical drama that the men themselves who'd been picked out, uh, volunteered, would enact for the bigger group. So the night before they'd volunteered and they were trained, uh, schooled in, in what the ritual was, and then they would act it out the next morning. And I did one the, the day after. Um, the first one involved a large mirror being brought into the circle, fake blood being poured over it, the snapping of branches and the clacking of stones. And it ended with this prayer i suppose you'd call it one of the men uh, intoned it abba father things fall apart it grows dark we lose hearts and must offer you our fear our fragmentation give us the courage to enter the cave of our wounds and to trust those holes in us to show us the way we know not the way through the final part of the ritual was the playing of a piece of American Indian pipe music by R. Carlos Nakai called Song for the Morning Star. Here's a little segment of it. Each of these prayer rituals was then followed up with a talk at that time by Richard on the theme of the day, which on that morning was separation. That initiation was about separating from business as usual, from your ordinary family setting and being alone. Very astutely, the non-verbal and verbal was followed by an hour's silence alone. So I wandered into the canyon and sat in my sacred space. And this is where I had the experience narrated in my poem. As I sat now in the lodge at Yellowstone Lake 21 years later, I thought long and hard about all my experiences with the men's work. 
I had returned from that MROP and helped to get MROPs and men's work in the style that Richard envisaged off the ground in the UK. The Male Journey is the organisation that we ended up founding to foster the work. I've led a number of rites of passage myself with great teams of, of men and later Tom who was sitting with me in that Yellowstone Lodge attended a young men's rites of passage that I helped to formulate with Stephen Gamble among other people. What struck me forcefully about when I thought about all this and you know I've had 20 years to reflect on it was that in a very western way we tried to cram a huge amount of ideas and content into a kind of doable event for the all too busy white middle class male. Um, I think in a way we were attempting sort of rapid initiation which is a kind of reflection of our instant culture. I'm not knocking this, it's it's just a reflection on, on how we bring all our cultural um, biases and the things that, that we have blind spots to in many ways and I'm trying to see those blind spots. Things that the psyche needs long spans of time to achieve, we were trying to push through in a matter of days. I do think Richard's work and the MROP are really commendable and I'm glad I did it and helpful but I think they're only ever a first step an essay in the craft as Tolkien says of uh, of some of the rings that were made they were an encouragement to set off on the exploration of what I think now are the numerous rites of passage we experience and the various initiations and transformations that we go through that 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 we're required to make by our psyche. This work continues in the male journey, thankfully, and in the US organisation, Illumin. I've also found what feels like probably a more comprehensive approach to some of these issues in the work of a guy called Bill Plotkin, who runs or founded a thing called the Animas Valley Institute. This is what he says, and I think it's really good. In recent decades, the Western world has rediscovered the vital importance of initiation. We recognise that over a span of many centuries, we'd lost something essential on the journey to becoming fully human. We're remembering there's something crucial that children need at puberty to guide them into healthy adolescence. We're remembering there's something young men, and even middle-aged men, need in order to help them attain what is sometimes called true manhood. We're remembering there's something young women and even middle-aged women need to enable them to embrace the full promise of womanhood. I think that's really interesting. Bill describes himself as a psychologist gone wild. His website portrays him as a depth psychologist wilderness guide and agent of cultural evolution very grand his attention to the whole cycle of life and the various transitions we move through is both thorough and for me convincing this is what he says about the issues i'm pondering here 
After many years of living these questions, he certainly walks the walk. After many expeditions of wandering through the terrible and majestic mysteries of nature and psyche, you at long last receive a glimpse or overhear a whisper of the greater, truer story of your individual life, or of the truth at the centre of the image you were born with, as the poet David White, my friend, says. This feels really deeply congruent with two things that have suffused my life since that Men's Rites of Passage at Ghost Ranch in 2002. The first is the power and potency of the natural world to provide both a script and a backdrop to our traversing of our path through life. Purposely, we called it the male journey because that's what it is, the human journey. And in that journey, there are many waypoints and transitions, rites of passage and initiations that we go through. The second is the gift of our unconscious and imagination to inform us and lead us to that image we were born with, as David says. This journey is so powerfully mapped and pioneered by C.G. Jung, especially in the Red Book, which has come out recently and is his journal of his one of his great transitions um, just around and after the First World War. To me, is like the Einstein of the psyche. What I realised in that cabin in Yellowstone was that we have so much to learn from the indigenous cultures that never lost that connection between Bill Plotkin's nature and the psyche. That's the name of one of his books. They haven't lost that connection. Respectful study and inquiry is appropriate, I think. Not in order to raid and plunder these cultures and their wisdom. But we need to rediscover through the use of our own poetic imagination, ways of working with our own inner landscapes, so that we can devise new and appropriate ceremonies, rites and rituals of our own. And I think it's been my aim in working with men in this country, it was always to move away from anything that wasn't culturally, culturally appropriate, I can't even say it, in our own country, so not to plunder Native American ideas, but that find echoes in our own indigenous traditions. Our days of the week are named, many of them, Thor's Day, Woden's Day, you know, Freya's Day. The Norse culture is in our background. Those indigenous Anglo-Saxon Celtic cultures uh, are in our backgrounds. Um, they're our inheritance and offer some hints to some of this, I would argue. I hope that my poem is my attempt to honour the traditions of, in this case, because we were in the States when, we were, when, when I was reflecting on this, of the Lakota and the indigenous people of the USA. As their voices are ones I think we really need to hear. That's what we felt while we were there. 
in this era of climate crisis and sort of general psychological disturbance. Just as an interesting aside that's not in the substack, a friend of mine shared with me, if, if anyone knows Maslow's hierarchy of needs, it's very common, people always talk about it. Apparently, when he was coming up with these, he went to the Blackfoot people in the USA and he felt that they completely inverted the thing. So um, at the top of it, for Western people, some people seem to reach that pinnacle of um, self-actualization. But he felt in that culture, everyone was reaching it because there was a completely different view of what you were here for and how you were connected within the community. So I think there's so much to learn from these cultures uh, that thankfully have, have, with great resilience, hung on through the trauma that the influx of Europeans created for them. I know that I wasn't engaging in anything like the seven rights of the Lakota. I do, though, recognise that we were drawing our water from their well, and I feel deeply thankful and honoured to have had the chance to drink again from some of the same water on the trip in the States. The metaphor of crying for a vision is a really powerful one. And in the Jungian tradition, as well as the American Indian spirituality, it's dreams and visions that play such a central role. I had my own experience of that, and I hope it encourages others to explore this journey we call our life. The vision I was given was not what I was looking for, but, as I say in the poem, I have tried with all my blood, all my guts, to try and come back to it again and again and realise that those metaphors of of raising my family, of tending the garden, the thing was right in front of me, the life that was right in front of me, and learning how to die, how to let go, were, were that was the vision I was given. My final thoughts that began to coalesce when we were in Yellowstone were around the individual and the collective. In his autobiography, Jung reflects on the task of the individual to differentiate from others and to stand on their own feet. To be conscious of their own peculiar nature. He warns that though collective identities can be shelters, home ports for the shipwrecked, they can also become beds for the lazy, nurseries for the irresponsible and shields for the timid, he says. You cannot be redeemed without having undergone the transformation in the initiation process. Carl Jung's Zarathustra Seminar. I don't think that the arduous task of individuation, as Jung names it, can be done in just a collective setting like the one created by the MROP, certainly as I experienced it in New Mexico. It may be, as it was in my case, a catalyst to that journey, a springboard maybe. I watched many men mistake involvement in the organisation that grew up around the MROP, Illuman, the Mail Journey, others across the, the, the world. They mistook involvement in those organisations and leadership even in them 
for that transforming journey of individuation, thinking that advancement in the collective would mediate that grasp of our peculiar nature. In other words, if I'm leading all these events, and I made that mistake a bit, then then I must be transformed. In fact, often it just activated their shadow. There's no substitute, as he says, for the struggle for individuation. In this era, era of the Me Too movement, I think women are rightly nervous of the rise of some men's groups and organisations, partly because of the issues of the individual and the collective I've just outlined, and the danger they perpetuate some kind of male supremacy and misogyny. It's just dressed in different clothes. I'm not saying that the male journey has that or, or the Illumin, but I think some men involved in it didn't really do the work uh, and, and that has to be addressed. I do, however, think that work that has a male-only component does offer a place for men to work together as fellow travellers on the path of individuation. And I've certainly experienced that with some of the men's groups I've been part of. This must, though, however, involve the feminine and women in the process at, at various points. Masculinity, gay, straight or trans is, I think, only achieved healthy and mature masculinity in conversation with femininity of all kinds and with those also who identify as non-binary. These conversations are hugely important. The experience that my poem narrates and my subsequent path, deeply informed by my working over the past seven years with my female Jungian analyst, leads me to this conclusion. I do want to contribute to a more individually orientated offering for the human traversing of each initiatory passage in, in whatever I can do as we move from one season of our life to another to create a more bespoke set of ceremonies and rituals, experiences and pilgrimages for myself and others if they want them. The crying for revision points the way for our creative and poetic imagination to find new and culturally appropriate ways of working to find the way we know not, the way through. Poetry, anxiety and vulnerability. This is the Anxious Poets Podcast. So, having spent three fabulous days in the Yellowstone National Park, we prepared to leave and head west. Thinking back on our time in this amazing landscape, we were feeling really grateful. Being without aircon and Wi-Fi, the slow speed limits everywhere, and being so close to the natural world helped us access a slower way of being. As we drove away, I remembered the things we had done after our picnic with the bison that was mentioned in the last podcast. So as we left the Lamar Valley, we had an amazing close encounter on the road back to Yellowstone Lake Lodge. A large example of the bison we'd seen from a distance was right in the middle of the road, stopping the traffic and giving us a real close-up of these incredible beasts. This one looked like Mike Tyson in a sheepskin cardigan. They are built. Our second day saw us heading up the western side of the park, arriving at Old Faithful, a geezer that shoots boiling water 50 or 60 feet in the air, 
about once an hour. As we sat on the benches waiting for the eruption, we were surveyed by two large bison, looking for all the world as if they were placed there for the photographic delectation of the tourists. When the Tower of Water exploded upwards into the big sky, it was greeted with rounds of whooping and applause. This really amused Tom, as if it were some act that needed human approbation, that we had to, like a performance, rather than an awesome example of how small we are in the light of the volcanic powers under the earth upon which we sat. We then headed off to see the Grand Prismatic, which is a few miles north of Old Faithful. It's created by extremely hot water, travelling about 120 feet from a crack in the earth to reach the surface of the spring. This is what the park website says about it. The hot spring has bright bands of orange, yellow and green that ring the deep blue waters in the spring. The multicoloured layers get their hues from different species of thermophile, heat-loving bacteria in the progressively, progressively cooler water around the spring. And the deep blue centre? Well, that's because the water scatters the blue wavelengths of light more than the others, reflecting blues back to our eyes. It was stunning. And as we stepped along the boardwalk, stopping every few seconds to take yet another photograph, we were increasingly aware of the darkening skies above us. The thunders were gathering their strength again, and we marvelled at the power of this landscape. We left the main pool only to be confronted by a smaller jewel-like little lake appropriately named the Opal Pool. As the storm approached, Tom caught a photograph that you can see on the substack. Um, just extraordinary. Dark sky, blue-green lake and brown landscape. As we hurried back to the car, memory cards filled with incredible images, the words of the Sheffield songster Richard Hawley came to me. There's a storm coming. You'd better run. There's a storm coming. Goodbye to the sun. There's a storm coming. You'd better run, boy, run. You'd better run. <laughs> this song was featured in a musical about our home city of Sheffield called Standing at the Sky's Edge. And as we ran the gauntlet of the torrential rain toward our next stop, I thought about the power of landscape to shape us, to pull us into the contours of its reality and to create an inner terrain that matches the outer one. The musical, I think, is an example of the way an iconic block of flats, Park Hill, and the undulant city of Sheffield shaped the lives of three generations from the 50s to now. We were now in another landscape that had such an effect on those who were indigenous to it and those who travelled west through it. This storm, at this sky's edge, seemed portentous of the way nature is speaking with increasing power of our peril and asking us to listen. I once heard a Jungian speaker saying something similar about our unconscious, our inner world. It tries to get our attention with increasing urgency when there's an issue that needs our conscious consideration. He said, first it sends a text, 
then an email, then a voicemail, and if you keep ignoring it, then finally it sends a letter bomb. It felt on that afternoon that nature was trying to give us an audio-visual voicemail. And I hope that we can listen and won't need the letter bomb. Now, and it's not lost on me that we'd flown a few thousand miles to get where we were and that we were using gasoline by the gallon to make this pilgrimage. And, you know, that there's no avoiding that and, and we are cognizant of that. But also, I think there are times when you do need to make journeys in order to find something that is actually at home but you would never have known if you didn't make the trip and it reminded me of this great story of Reb Isaac Benyakel of Krakow here's the story there was once an impoverished man by the name of Reb Isaac Benyakel of Krakow he lived in poverty for many years not knowing where his next crust of bread would come from still Reb Isaac had implicit faith that God would not let him starve and that one day his suffering would end. One night he dreamed that there was a highly valuable buried treasure under a specific bridge in Prague. At first he paid the dream no attention, assuming it was mere wishful thinking. After all, who doesn't dream of riches? But when the dream repeated itself, night after night, he began to reconsider Perhaps there was something to it. Could it possibly be true? So he set off to Prague, a long and tiring journey, only to discover that the bridge was right near the royal palace and thus heavily guarded at all hours. Soldiers marched up and down, alert and ready, looking for any signs of danger or unusual activity. Digging under the bridge was clearly out of the question, Oh, how disappointing. But Reb Isaac was not going to give up that easily. He returned to the bridge day after day until the guards began to recognise him. Soon they became curious. Why do you come to the bridge every day? One of the guards asked him. Are you waiting for someone? Reb Isaac knew they wouldn't believe some half-hearted excuse, so he told them about his dream. The guard listened, threw back his head and laughed heartily. You came all this way because of a silly dream, you fool. I had a dream that a certain Jew, Reb Isaac Ben Yakel, has buried treasure under his stove. But do you see me going on a wild goose chase? Of course not. And he laughed uproariously. Meanwhile, Reb Isaac hurried off to buy a ticket for the first train back to Krakow. Now he knew where to look, sure enough. When he arrived, he immediately shoved the iron stove out of the way and began digging at the hard dirt. And to his great joy and astonishment, after some effort, he uncovered a chest of gold coins. He used the money to build a magnificent synagogue which bore his name. And with the rest of the money, he built himself a comfortable home and furnished it well. So somehow I hope that our pilgrimage west, following a dream that I had, bringing us into dialogue with the dreams of the indigenous Indians and those who went west 
on the Oregon Trail will enable us to live in a way that treasures our own land and live with a deeper love, care, respect and reparation. So, as the storm abated, we arrived at the great canyon carved by the Yellowstone River, creating two spectacular waterfalls. We walked the mile down to the viewing platform and weren't disappointed. Walking back up, I realised that we were at 8,000 feet. I had to keep stopping and forcing breath into my 62-year-old lungs. We headed to an observation post and the most incredible views. If you look on the substack, there's a picture of Tom risking life and limb for a shot of the incredible um, the valley below him. As we drove back to the cabin, I reflected with a little disappointment to Tom that we'd seen neither wolves nor bears that I'd had in my dream and we were leaving in the morning. So now, as we headed out of the park, again, I expressed my sadness to Tom. That morning we were headed round the lake and saw evidence of old forest fires probably about five to seven years ago and were amazed at how the trees and undergrowth had been rejuvenated. We left the Yellowstone National Park and entered the Grand Teton National Park, a spectacular 40 mile long mountain range with the highest peak being nearly 14,000 feet. We travelled along the side of the huge Jackson Lake, stopping to take photographs of the incredible vistas. The area had a clean and washed feeling, as if there'd been a wonderful rainstorm and everything was fresh and now shimmering in the sunlight. Everywhere you looked, your eye fell upon beauty. It felt like a fitting farewell to the grandeur of the national parks, and with a sense of sadness, we headed out of the park toward the town of Jackson. Suddenly, in front of us, I noticed a jumble of cars jackknifed across the road, and I said to Tom, what the hell's going on? He pointed to the gap between the two cars and said, look, Dad, look. There, right in the middle of the road, was a full-size, living and breathing grizzly bear. It ambled past us and headed into the brush on the other side of the road, Tom fumbling for his camera as I watched, starstruck. Power and wildness right there in front of us. I was silent for a while as we drove on, thinking with gratitude that we'd actually been visited in this way and trying to hold in my mind and body that sensation that this natural and amazing animal had engendered in me. In Elizabeth Kaspari's great book, Animal Life, in Nature, Myths and Dreams, she says this about bears. Given its power, the bear's capacity to tear and shred is often a symbol of madness. The word berserk, which etymologically means bear shirt, originally referred to the reckless, almost unchecked battle fury of certain Norse warriors. Now, to go berserk denotes madness, conjuring up the image of a raging bear. However, when such a force is tamed through awareness and experience without succumbing to the fragmentation and chaos brought by the bear image, it becomes extremely protective, lending its strength to the conscious aspect of the personality. Viewed in this light, the bear becomes a clever creature, prudent and cautious in some ways, agile and dexterous, purposeful and methodical. This was the bear that I was experiencing. 
I dreamed of bears and wolves months before, and in some ways the trip was to experience a landscape where they live in the wild. In this moment of communion, I began to appreciate Kaspari's words at a more cellular level. Still thrumming from the experience, we arrived in Jackson. This had been a trapper town, part of the movements of Europeans west. Now it's a well-heeled middle-class ski resort with lovely boardwalks, shops and galleries. Whilst we were there, we visited the National Museum of Wildlife Art that perches on the valley side, just on the outskirts of the town. Again, into our minds were conjured the powerful animal life of the Midwest. Moving on from Jackson, we crossed the state line into Idaho and headed for Idaho Falls. In our travelling, we kept crossing the Oregon Trail that we had first encountered all the way back in Fort Laramie. This kept reminding us of the great migrations of the 19th century. This is what Wikipedia says about the trail. From the early to mid-1830s, and particularly through the years 1846-69, to 69, the Oregon Trail and its many offshoots were used by about 400,000 settlers, farmers, miners, ranchers and business owners and their families. The eastern half of the trail was used by travellers on the Californian Trail from 1843, the Mormon Trail in 1847 and the Bozeman Trail from 1863, before turning off to their separate destinations. Use of the trail declined after the first transcontinental railroad was completed in 1869, making the trip west substantially faster, cheaper and safer. Today, modern highways such as Interstate 80 and 84 follow parts of the same course westward and pass through towns originally established to serve those using the Oregon Trail. We mused on the contradictory feelings that this evoked in us. The whole history of land appropriation from indigenous peoples mentioned in our other uh, journal entries is one pole. The other, though, is awe at the tenacity of these uprooted people to seek a better life on the other side of the continent. The scale of the human cost of this enterprise is hard to calculate, both for the indigenous people and the settlers. We read that the Lakota named it the White's Holy Road because they thought something that took such a toll must have a sacred purpose. As we travelled each night, I re-watched 1883 Taylor Sheridan's spin-off series from the original Yellowstone. It charts the Dutton's family's exodus to Montana along the trail. It gives a powerful insight into its history. There's a part where things have become hard on the trail and James Dutton, played by a country singer called Tim McGraw, says this of his daughter. I didn't have the heart to tell her there's not heaven to go to because we're in it already. We're in hell too. They coexist right beside each other and God is the land. Wow. So one night when we were in Idaho Falls, I wrote this poem. The Holy Road. We drive along the Holy Road as the Lakota named it, the great westward trail from Missouri to Oregon. Now it is tarmac and gas stations, 
Nothing heroic required to traverse huge vistas of prairie grass, just an automobile and desire. Desire to get from one place to another, to move across the landscape rather than be in it, or be shaped by its harshness. It was named the Holy Road because the Lakota peoples felt any trail that exacted such sacrifices of the whites must be sacred. They were a people who knew the price of nomadic life on the plains and tolerated by treaty the width of white wagon wheels on the land. Today, we in our turn desired to make this trip across the West, to feel this exacting landscape and to be an innocence of itinerancy. There is something in the nights on the plains when we rest from the road that dreams in me that reveals a deeper resonance. That these journeys are a counterpart of the journey we want to make when we leave this life that our loved ones will make the long path ceremonies for. That these landscapes mirror some other open ranges we have to traverse in order to find the soul's true west, the milky path through the starlit sky. Hmm, the milky path through the starlit sky. So in my nighttime musings and dreaming, I realised that these long pilgrimages, like the one we were making, have an archetypal quality, and they speak so much of our instinctual sense that when we die, we go on a journey. I read that the Lakota believe that the soul travels on up the Milky Way to its home with the Great Spirit. All our journeying led me to this realisation, and it made me feel a great sense of gratitude and wonder. And if you look on the substack, there's a picture from Idaho Falls of one of the great Midwestern skies that opens up wonder and gratitude. Poetry, anxiety and vulnerability. This is the Anxious Poets Podcast. You stride on, my son, ahead of us up Enchanted Rock. It was one of those moments that you recognise after the event as epiphanic, charged, numinous in some way, from William Boyd's Any Human Heart. You stride on, my son, ahead of us up Enchanted Rock, not a bead of sweat though Jim and I were lathered, and bearing life's baton, you entered the cave red dark. A steep, weathered, pink dome, a stone skin with a pock, a tunnel system under its crust, entrance puckered. You stride on, my son, ahead of us, up enchanted rock. Jim, my Texan brother, demanded of you a taking stock, handing you our era's torch, the light by granite splintered, and bearing life's baton, you entered the cave red dark. The narrow challenge of the entrance made me balk. I waited on the surface, a poor father, hardly fathered, as you stride on, my son, ahead of us up enchanted rock. 
Jim appeared after some time, face streaked with shock. You had left him behind, two boys in tow, a leader uncovered, and bearing life's baton, you entered the cave red dark. You emerged, broiled, having broken childhood's lock. The baton we passed, you said, was heavier than expected. You stride on, my son, ahead of us, up enchanted rock, and bearing life's baton, you enter the cave red dark. We were coming to the end of our trip, the wonders of the Great Plains and the grandeur of Yellowstone and the Grand Teton National Parks were behind us. This part of the trip was about Tom, my son, an encounter he had been building up towards for at least six years. We left Idaho Falls and its gigantic Walmart that we visited after having had, surprisingly, one of the best curries I've ever had. We'd found the restaurant in a Google search. It was called The Taste of the Himalayas. Our server was new to her job. We ordered with trepidation, as we come from the north of England where good curry was brought to us by the Bangladeshi and Pakistani immigrants who came to work in our factories and enrich our culture and cuisine. We were happily surprised and shaken out of our prejudice by the food. After Tom needed some resupplying of snacks and shower gel, so we entered the jaws of the behemoth that was a Walmart supercentre. We came away overawed by the sheer volume of stuff on offer in this soccer pitch side store. We were most horrified slash impressed by the hugest sack of M&Ms we'd ever seen. It resembled a large bag of dog biscuits you might see in the UK. It needed a carry handle because it was so large. <laughs> we thought about this and mused on why you would need such a great big bag and we crossed a truck stop in the dark with cabs full of sleeping truckers. We hit the road early the next day and started the long trek along highways 26 and 20 to Boise. Why Boise? Well, this final destination of our odyssey began to establish itself in Tom's consciousness and therefore our itinerary some seven years ago. It all started with a PlayStation 4 and a game. Rainbow Six Siege, known as a first-person shooter. Tom found himself playing this game online with some Sheffield mates who then stumbled into an international group online all playing the same game and there began an online friendship that led to Highway 20 to Boise. Again, the terrain around us changed. We were now in the potato state it was a little like heading from Sheffield to Doncaster, but on steroids. Oh, and we were going west, not east. From the hilly world of the Pennines, you hit the flatlands going east toward the Humber. So here it was the same, but writ large. From the soaring heights of the Grand Tetons to the endless fields of wheat, maize, and of course spuds, row on row of potatoes. Every so often we'd stop for fuel and snacks on the long drive. The gas stations, they're not just fuel stops, they're like little community centres in a sea of agriculture. They're often staffed by young women, four or five of them. They provide food, restrooms, showers and a cornucopia of food and drink. 
Here we saw cowboy-booted farmers ambling in and exchanging the time of day and shooting the breeze with the staff, who they seemed to greet like family members. Well, perhaps they were. This is rural Midwest America at its most pristine. In order to make the time pass on the long straight roads, we listened to this fantastic, if pretty inane, podcast called The Friendship Onion. It's hosted by two actors that played Merry and Pippin in the Lord of the Rings trilogy, Dom Monaghan and Billy Boyd. It's daft, but really amusing, and it's a celebration of their time in the films and their friendships and the friendships they formed on the set. It made us laugh out loud. It also presaged with the idea of friendship, what was about to happen when we arrived in Boise. Tom was about to meet the people he'd been playing online with for years. Chad and Shelby lived in Boise, and the three others, Michael, Brandon and Mason, were flying in from Kentucky and Chicago. Having had a good night's sleep, we headed out to the rendezvous, a barbecue joint in the suburb of the city. As we pulled into the parking lot, they were all gathered on the sidewalk, and as Tom exited the car, they engulfed him like a long-lost relative. They were all respectfully welcoming me too and shook my hand and we sat round a large table to have our first barbecue meal together. I was really moved by this happy coming together. I have to admit to being slightly wary as I'm of an age that views this whole online phenomenon with a slight level of unease, possibly prejudice. The genuine warmth and kindness in this disparate group of web-facilitated friends was amazing to see and feel. Tom has been recently diagnosed as neurologically diverse and I'd realised, I realised that he'd shared this journey with his friends and it was now apparent he'd received a huge amount of care and support from them. I was really stunned by the power of these friendships to provide a kind of safety net in times of tribulation and struggle for Tom. It was also clear that Tom had reciprocated in the years during which they'd founded their friendship and camaraderie. The poem at the head of this post comes from a time when Tom was much younger and still reeling from another diagnosis, type 1 diabetes. At that time, we were visiting a friend of mine who sadly I'm now estranged from in Texas. He'd taken us to the hill country in this incredible domed pink granite batholith named Enchanted Rock. It's riddled with caves and tunnels and I was suffering from anxiety at the time so I didn't want to go in and him and Tom went into the tunnels and I waited on the surface. After a while Jim reappeared and I asked him where Tom was. He said that Tom had gone deeper in and he'd lost contact with him and he was with a group of teenagers. After a very anxious 20 minutes, Tom appeared red-faced and dusty. I was really grateful that I wouldn't have to ring his mum and tell him we'd lost him. He had, in fact, led the youngsters back to the surface. As I reflected on these events, I realised they mirrored the initiatory struggle Tom had been through in the years leading up to this time. Later, he did a Young Men's Rites of Passage that we, Jim, myself and others building on the work of people like Richard Rohr and Mercia Eliard came up with. However, I would say there's always symbolic moments and experiences that are initiatory, and this in The Rock was, some, was one of them. 
By initiatory, I mean they move us from one phase of our life to another and we're able to let go of things that no longer serve us in order to take up new forms of, of living that are more life-giving. There's a powerful initiatory struggle in crises of physical or mental health and for sure Tom and I have had both. Mercy Eliard says, without conscious rituals of loss and renewal, individuals and societies lose the capacity to experience the sorrows and joys that are essential for feeling fully human. Without them, life flattens out and meaning drains from both living and dying. Soon, there is a death of meaning and an increase in meaningless deaths. Tom certainly made some changes in his life after that young men's rites of passage. And they were healthy and helpful. It was at this time that he began to form these friendships that had come to such fruition here in Boise, Idaho. After lunch, we went to Independence Indoor Shooting, an experience that for me was a massive culture shock. This is a place, common in the USA, where you can go and shoot a variety of different firearms for fun. As Tom and his friends spent so much time playing shooting games, this was just like a live version of the online experience. The whole thing was really well regulated and marshalled and managed by the staff, and I, I can see the excitement in firing weapons, like the fifty caliber that Tom shot at $10 a shell. However, it was also like a shock to the system. Standing behind Tom as he lay on the floor to fire the weapon and feeling the massive recoil and smelling the pungent gunpowder filling the air made me feel uneasy and vulnerable. Michael, who's a bit older than the others and has served in the military, is like a bit of a dad to the group in some ways, shared that he'd been in Afghanistan and been under fire from such a weapon. Ooh, I could see the terror that such weapons create and the courage that people like him exhibited in joining up. My respect for him and his kindness to Tom grew over the next few days. Quite a guy. The older staff member from Independence, who was looking after us, asked why we were there, and I told him that we were from the UK. He said, oh, I'm really sorry about that. Excuse my American accent. I asked him why, and he said, well, you can't carry firearms. No, I said with pride. He replied, my God, I would not feel safe. This powerfully delineated the culture shock. I, I feel safe because we have few guns. He felt safe because they've got loads. Reeling from all this, we went back to Chad and Shelby's for a drink and more chat. As we headed back to the hotel... I thought about the goodness of these friends that Tom had made and that my judgments about the violence of American culture was certainly not borne out in these generous and hospitable people. We talked again in the car about the formation of the USA as we travelled back to the hotel, the Oregon Trail and the rugged individualism it engendered, the need to be self-reliant in a society with hardly any safety nets. All of this has contributed to such a different mindset to ours. It is without doubt a foreign country, a country beset with all kinds of issues and divisions. It's hard to see how the problem of numerous mass shootings will be solved, and Tom's friends were equally bemused 
at the ease with which a gun can be procured in the USA. Each culture has its issues and God knows we in the UK have enough, but the Gordian knot of gun ownership presents a horrible dilemma. We headed back to the hotel and the promise of another day together tomorrow. The next morning we met at the Botanical Gardens, a visit I think for my benefit, I think again after the trauma of the shooting range, and it certainly was more restful. We wandered the flower beds and sculptures in the early sun, and I marvelled at the easy humour of the lads. Sighted next to an old penitentiary still sporting the observation towers, it felt a bit like being on the set of the Shawshank Redemption. Shelby had to work, so we arranged to meet her for lunch at a place called Chick-fil-A, a chain that they thought me and Tom should sample. Fast food at its best and worst, all at the same time. Shelby said she'd meet us for the evening's adventure and headed off. We went back to Brandon and Michael's hotel room and watched a film. Then it was off to a place called Top Golf. Again, I think for my benefit. It was a two-tier golf range that left the Moorview range that we go to in Sheffield looking very poor and shabby. It had a huge bar and grill and then each booth had its own server to bring whatever food and drink you wanted to order. We took two booths, which each had a large, two large TV screens that told you the length and the direction of each shot and gave points for club distance and accuracy. Tom and I were the ones with experience this time. I don't actually like golf, but I've got lots of friends who've retired and they want to play, so I go along. With one of these group of friends, we play what one of them describes as Buddhist golf, where the ability and skill are second to the act of being out in the green world and and sharing each other's friendship and banter. Tom has also played a bit, so we were sought out this time for advice and coaching. They got the hang of it all pretty quick and we had a great time. Back at the hotel, we packed and reminisced on the trip. It's been a real odyssey for both of us. We had both travelled the trail, carrying the burden of our own personal time of life. This is the great virtue of a trip like this. There's space and time to process, to take stock. This is an excerpt from a poem called The Journey by my mate David White. Sometimes it takes a great sky to find that first bright and indescribable wedge of freedom in your own heart. Sometimes, with the bones of the black sticks left when the fire has gone out, someone has written something new in the ashes of your life. You are not leaving. Even as the light fades quickly now, you are arriving. These words came back to me from my friend David's work. We were feeling melancholic at the prospect of leaving, of ending the journey. We had taken the holy road, as I shared in the last piece, and now we were leaving. These words of David's piece were reassuring to me that all endings are also beginnings. Our last gathering with Tom's mates was at a breakfast restaurant near Chad's. With the car all packed up and ready for the long haul to Salt Lake City, we waited in the parking lot for the lads to arrive. They turned up looking like a sort of pastiche of reservoir dogs. Look on the substack for the picture. 
we consumed an obscene amount of breakfast fare and laughed and chatted and then made a really sad parting. I often hear so much disparagement about Tom's generation. Gamers are just closeted in their rooms, not really in this world. Well, these young men were the opposite of that caricature, all with different takes on the world, engaged and present. The world they live in takes a powerful toll on their mental health, and it's in these types of online cadres, if Tom's mates are any guide, great friendship is fostered. The next two days were spent negotiating the drive to Salt Lake City, flying from there to Dallas-Fort Worth and then to London Heathrow. We were in that haze that transatlantic travel creates, flying through the night, watching the first three Harry Potter movies on the seat-back screen, eating plastic food and trying in vain to sleep. As we saw the dawn rise over London, we silently acknowledged to each other that we had shared a wedge of freedom that only the road can mediate. Well, thanks for listening. It's a little bit long, sorry, to these reminiscences, these thoughts about our American odyssey. Slightly different from the normal podcast. Next time, I'm going to be looking at Christmas and the darkness and light of Christmas, the opposites that it presents us with and especially in the light of current events so i look forward to speaking to you next time i'm adrian scott i am the anxious poet and i'll see you next time poetry anxiety and vulnerability this is the anxious poets podcast